Hi, we're here with Jeremy Longhurst of Broadwater talking about next year's ISAS meeting, which will take place in May 2021 in my home state of Florida in Boca Raton. So Jeremy, tell us what kind of resources or events will be available at the meeting for some of the younger surgical trainees, be it medical students or residents. Certainly. There are, I think, two big needs that younger surgeons have. There's the needs of information about how they build their career. And that, I think, often comes through discussion and interaction with surgeons who are obviously in the later stages of their careers. So there's going to be a series of seminars around topics uh, such as if you want to go in an academic career direction, how do you begin to build that? Uh, those young surgeons will be able to get a lot of personalized information during those sessions. And then I think the other direction is, of course, uh, building your own uh, surgical skill set. And so there's going to be a large amount of case discussions, again, with uh, surgeons in the later stages of their careers to really address some of the uh, questions and issues that younger surgeons have about particular cases. And I think sometimes it's easier uh, for young surgeons to be together, to ask those sorts of questions, as opposed to being in a large general session room where perhaps some of the more developed surgeons, older surgeons, wouldn't have uh, those types of questions. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. This week, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by one of the icons of neurosurgery, Harry Van Loveren. I had the opportunity to meet Harry back in 1995 uh, in Cincinnati uh, when he was working with John Two, the, the legendary John Two, spelled T-E-W, and they were, uh, they were really uh, doing some amazing skull-based surgery in Cincinnati, Ohio, and, and now Harry is the chairman at University of South Florida in Tampa. So Harry, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's quite a privilege. Great, great. Well, let's start out by talking a little bit about the history, uh, because you're very much part of that. You know, in terms of how we got here with skull-based surgery, a lot of our listeners remember they're younger neurosurgeons or folks who want to be neurosurgeons. So tell, tell us about how we got to this era where we're doing really complicated surgeries, or I should say you are, I'm not doing them, uh, where we're taking apart the base of the skull. Well, you know, you referenced John too, and about that time in the late 1980s and early 1990s, we were attacking the same tumors that are now being approached by skull-based surgery, but our results were rather disastrous for entities like petroclival meningiomas. I'd say probably the majority of our patients were suffering some kind of significant paralysis and John, too, as I recall, just declared an absolute moratorium for one year on these types of surgeries in our practice until we could uh, kind of scour the world and find people who had a better solution. And that's how we found people like Minko Delenz and Majid Sami, uh, Shaker, Al Mefti, 
and we started uh, inviting all these people to Cincinnati and trying to put together all the different techniques they were working on. Well, sir, I, I'm always fascinated to think about these sub-sub-specialties within neurosurgery being so early in my career myself. And I, you know, I think when you take the first big split in breaking down subspecialties within neurosurgery, spine and cranial, I always like to think that spine is about mechanics and all the moving parts, and cranial surgery is really about the anatomy and the geography almost of how you get where you need to go and, and navigate there safely. I wonder if you could talk a bit as we're thinking about the history of skull-based surgery, what's your personal approach to skull-based surgery and exploring that area, area of the body with such complex anatomy? What, what's your take on it and, and what's your kind of broad picture approach to the, that topic and that, that area within the body? You know, I think you're absolutely right. When we started sort of developing, inventing, participating in skull-based surgery, it became all about the anatomy. Uh, we really uh, did something uh, novel in building our first uh, anatomic dissection laboratory. And as you may know, we uh, kind of created the idea of uh, traveling dissection courses to the CNS, AANS, and, and then finally internationally, but just countless hours in laboratory dissection to understand the anatomy involved. Uh, that anatomy did not belong to neurosurgery. It was scattered around other disciplines. Eventually, we had to bring those other disciplines together, um, stealing some knowledge from each other, but uh, also largely cooperating with each other to add that expertise. And so, as you know, skull-based surgery really uh, evolved into a very collaborative, multidisciplinary effort, still is today. And Dr. Van Leveren, I assume you're talking about mostly ENT, right? ENT surgeons? Mostly ENT, uh, different subspecialties within, within ENT, you know, rhinology for going through the transfacial approaches, neurootology for going through the petrous bone approaches, and then head and neck surgery for some of the complex uh, craniocervical tumors. And then every once in a while, a spine surgeon like you to put things back together. <laughs> well, you're too kind, but it's it's great because we've had some of our most popular podcasts in terms of of how many people have listened have been with skull based icons like yourself, Jacques Morcos, Robert Spetzler, Mike Lawton, and the like. And I think to some degree, you know, you you just mentioned the discipline required. We we harp on that a lot on this podcast, and you are sort of the pinnacle of uh, in doing skull base of technical skill inside of our field, right? And and tell me about how that goes, because I remember seeing these folks who wanted to do skull base in the laboratory every weekend, like every Saturday, given up from their families to go drill on cadaveric heads or, or temporal bone. And is, is that necessary today? Is that some is that level of discipline you think necessary to ensure patient safety? I don't think it has to be uh, as intense as it was in the old days. You know, we started knowing nothing and therefore we spent uh, almost every Saturday and Sunday for hours uh, doing dissections because there weren't any reference books to go to. So we were writing about the anatomy, developing photographs of the anatomy, atlases of the anatomy. There's a lot more information available now and a lot more knowledge base within the teaching programs. So I don't think it's quite as intense, but I don't think you can be a skull-based surgeon without some significant laboratory and cadaveric dissection time. Uh, 
Um, you're not going to get it just in the operating room and you're not going to get it just from reading about it. You're going to have to get into the lab. Dr. Van Lever, it's interesting that you say you're, you're not going to be a skull-based surgeon. I wonder if you could comment on just what that term means to you. Skull-based, unlike other disciplines within neurosurgery and, and perhaps even in other surgical fields, is kind of defined solely by the region, as the name says, and it encompasses vascular lesions, uh, tumors, even functional procedures that happen in that area of the body. And so there's all these disparate kind of sub, sub, sub specialties happening within one region of the body, whereas everything else within neurosurgery is largely broken down by, you know, you could be a tumor surgeon, a vascular surgeon, et cetera, et cetera, whereas skull-based surgeons and people who call themselves skull-based surgeons kind of field all of those things within that region. How, how do you see that all break down? You know, I never thought that there was anything truly like a skull-based surgeon or a subspecialty of skull-based surgery. I've always felt, uh, as you're alluding to, that it's a set of special approaches, special techniques, and the use of some unique tools. And it's added to the armamentarian of a complex cranial neurosurgeon. So, you know, whether it's the endoscopic transfacial techniques or the petrosal techniques, uh, these have to be additive to your cranial practice. I've trained 25 fellows in skull-based surgery. Not one of them makes a living just doing skull-based surgery. You know, they are cranial neurosurgeons, I guess, like you are a spine neurosurgeon, but you have an added skill set. So it's, it's only a question of whether a fully trained cranial neurosurgeon wants to take the time to add that added skill set and those added techniques to his or her practice. So Dr. Van Leveren, maybe for the listeners who aren't fully indoctrinated and trained neurosurgeons, you could give us a, a brief synopsis of why this specialty is, is uniquely uh, difficult to master and dangerous if you're on it, if you're if you're not properly trained, right? Is it is it that it's the technical features, the manual skill is different? Is it that the anatomy you're working with is exquisitely sensitive? What parts about this make it sort of, uh, you know, like sort of like the culmination, all the work Roton did, right? What makes it so so particular in that way? I think what makes it uh, difficult, and one of the reasons you never really read a great skull-based surgery article, in my opinion, is because you can't really describe it. Um, you really have to know the anatomy and then in surgery, you kind of make your own way. So my residents and fellows are often perplexed. They, they say, what are we going to do in this case? Well, I, I don't really know in advance, but we have a solid understanding of complex anatomy, whether it leads you into the head, out of the head, down into the infratemporal fossa, through the clivus, uh, through the back of the mouth. We're just going to use our knowledge of the anatomy to navigate through a complex case. Um, that makes it a little bit different uh, and more complicated. You can't really describe in advance what you're going to do in this particular case. You know, I love that you say that. Maybe you've just answered one of the questions I've always had in my life, which is, uh, maybe we could say, I was just finishing watching this documentary on Bruce Lee. It's like, you can't always describe in words what a person does if they're a master martial artist. And in the same way, you can't just write it down in a book 
like what a skull-based surgeon needs to know, right? You have to know it. You have to have a maybe a three-dimensional visualization of the anatomy, or you need to have an understanding that goes beyond basic verbal human language. Is that am I saying that right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. What I've told a lot of my fellows, and in our writing, we uh, always allude to this, and that is we can describe, I can describe a certain approach like how to do an anterior petrosectomy in terms of the bony part, how to do a transclival approach. But then there's this phase of surgery called removing the tumor, where my description is, well, then you, then you visualize the tumor, you interrogate it, and it will tell you what to do. It will tell you what you can do, what you can't do, whether you should be on the left or the right, but it all happens through the interrogation of the tumor. And in the end, the tumor is removed. And that's a lot of what our articles sound like then the tumor was removed. Interrogating the tumor, I, I love that description for it. And in fact, I, I feel that in, in the last few answers you've given us, Dr. Van Leveren, you, you've already answered my next question because I can sense the, the passion in your voice and the love for what you do. But I wonder if for people at my stage of training, early in residency, or even uh, people aspiring to residency in medical school now, if you could make the case for skull base as a discipline and make the case for skull-based surgery as something to pursue. I, I detect uh, hints of adventure in your voice. I detect, um, you know, a love for that game day decision and see what you find and figure it out. Um, I wonder if you could expand for us on what drew you to that uh, discipline and, and what keeps you engaged in it every day. Well, uh, with a bit of shallowness, I would say I've always been drawn to anything that is uh, difficult and dangerous. Um, that's what attracted me to neurosurgery uh, in the first place. Um, and I think I was also drawn to the incredible ability to help someone who others have seemingly abandoned. I mean, that's how we got into this, uh, you know, people who had been given up on because of the complexity of their problem. Um, and part of it was a total lack of interdisciplinary uh, collegiality and cooperation. You know, we were seeing people with tumors of the cranium that extended into the orbit and the neurosurgeon would say, too much for me. The orbital ophthalmology surgeon would say that goes beyond me. And then the patient's told there's nothing that could be done. That was the adventure to go into so-called no man's land, you know, gather some allies and uh, go to war. And it is uh, similar to what we were alluding to before, as they say about going to war, everybody's got a plan until the first shot is fired. So Dr. Van Lover and I had the honor of coming out to Tampa a number of year ago, years ago uh, and and I remember that you were getting very involved uh, in, or you were already involved, I should say, in skydiving. Can you tell us about the parallels of, of jumping out of an airplane at, I don't know, uh, is it 15,000 feet and, and taking out a skull-based tumor? Yeah, it's 14,000 feet. And I think, uh, you know, everybody likes to make their sport into a paradigm for their profession. And I certainly do. I, I think you have to, in skydiving, you have to be able to seriously compartmentalize and focus on what's going on at this moment. As my early instructor used to say, you know, you have, uh, you don't have to worry about dying until the last 20 seconds. So until then, just focus on the uh, contents, just focus on the moves and 
uh, and then in the last 20 seconds, you have 10 seconds to figure it out. That's a lot like skull base and vascular surgery. Just don't be afraid and then move quickly when, when something happens. Be prepared. And I, I do like the opportunity to risk someone's life, uh, my own, instead of my patient. My patients used to come to my office and tell me how courageous I was, and I really wondered if that was true because I knew they were courageous. I wanted to see if I was. Mm. Well, I wonder if we could take that view together, sir, from 14,000 feet and turn our eyes ahead, having discussed kind of the history of skull-based surgery. You know, in, in recent decades, probably one of the, the greatest advancements and changes to the field has been the growing application of endoscopy to skull-based surgery. I, I wonder if you see anything on the horizon for the uh, skull-based surgeons of the next generation and the decades to come. Well, I, I do have a vision in the future for better equipment, uh, better techniques, uh, better tissue grafting. But where I think skull-based surgery now really needs to go is better understanding of oncology and more participation in understanding the uh, histology of the disease and get beyond our uh, fascination with our approaches because in many, in many areas, you know, the, uh, the histology of this tumor, tumor is still defeating us, going way beyond our techniques. So along those lines, can you comment on, of course, radiosurgery, right, as being the analog of, of, uh, of what you do? In other words, you're mechanically removing these tumors, and radiosurgery has advanced so much in the past 30 years, right? Is, is, it, is it a threat to skull base? Is it complementary? How, how do you look at it? I think uh, radiosurgery has really saved skull base. You know, we resisted it and argued against it uh, at first, and I was right there with the skull base surgeons criticizing the uh, the use of radiosurgery. But now, of course, it's my and all my uh, colleagues' best friend. It allows us to pull back on some of our aggressive approaches that created so much neurologic deficit, appropriately leave residual benign tumor, radiate it, and keep it under control. If not for radiosurgery, I think skull-based surgery would have started to fade uh, long ago for all the complications and devastation it was causing. Now we don't have to be so aggressive. So it's, it's the skull-based surgeon's best friend. Well, I, I love that approach that you take thinking about the, as you said, the histology of these tumors that you, that you attack. Um, so I wonder if you could speak a bit about working with these various uh, disciplines within medicine, not just co-surgeons, but the coordination of, of teams between the surgical team, the oncologists, the radiation docs, um, at least how, do, how does it go in your practice and to what extent do you think neurosurgeons can learn and, and better work with these other specialties and caring for these patients? Well, I think it's very important for skull-based surgeons to put together teams that are multidisciplinary, not only with other surgical disciplines, but of course with various areas of oncology and, and radiation Many of our decisions now are being made on the mitotic index of a tumor, its uh, cellular characteristics. Obviously, we're using chemotherapy judiciously. We're searching for new chemotherapeutic agents for some of our tumors that keep recurring. Um, 
So it's very important to have that aspect in the practice. If you're a skull-based surgeon and all you know are skull-based approaches, you're not really taking appropriate care of your patients. You know, some there. I go to tumor board and we have cases presented and they're presented, for instance, as a craniofacial malignancy. Well, that's a broad category and the tactics you would use for one tumor like squamous cell versus another like sinonasal undifferentiated, they are so dramatically different. You have to have oncology at the table and on your mind. Well, Dr. Van Leveren, I want to wrap this up by asking you about something that just captured my imagination. Um, my good friend, Juan Uribe, who used to work for you, uh, he, he told me that you guys in your department had a life coach uh, that was helping you to enhance the quality of care you deliver, uh, maybe enhance the quality of your own personal lives. And, you know, that just totally blew my mind because I was like, wow, that is exactly what I've always wanted to do to pick apart, you know, my blind spots and help me to improve. Um, can you tell us about how you even arrived at thinking about doing that? Because that's in some ways so antithetical to what a typical neurosurgical chairman would do, right? Well, like typical neurosurgical chairs, I resisted it at first. It was a, a proposed experiment of the uh, Dean of Education to transfer one the, um, the performance coach psychologist from the athletic department to one of the surgical departments to see if there were any similarities between a high-performing athletic team uh, and a high-performing surgical team. I scoffed at it at first and I told them I wasn't interested, but if the coach wanted to uh, speak to us, uh, he would have to embed himself in our program for at least three months in the 80 hour work week, uh, taking night call and attending every aspect of our service. So he agreed. And once he did that, uh, we were willing to listen to what he thought. And uh, he really floored us with the problems he found in the way we approach things, the way we related to each other, and the great uh, discrepancies between what we said we valued and what our actions showed that we valued. Things like saying that we valued academics, but it could not be found anywhere in our compensation plan. Uh, saying we uh, rank very high uh, lifestyle and family, but it couldn't be found anywhere in the way behave, we behaved or acted or scheduled ourselves. So he really forced us into uh, collating our values, writing them out, one through 10, and then changing every aspect of our structure and behavior, uh, including our schedules, our compensation plans to reflect that we truly honored these values. It was a profound change for us. And it goes on every day because he is now our full-time in-house performance coach and takes uh, time with each one of us individually and time with the department as a group. Wow. I, I, I love that not only did you bring him on to consult, um, but that you made him work in the department for three months. That, that might be the most neurosurgeon thing I've ever heard. Um, but now that now he's fully a member of staff in the department, that's phenomenal. I, I wonder, Dr. Van Lover, and I'm sure that most of the changes he proposed, observations he makes, et cetera, et cetera, are very tailored to your department as these things should be. But I wonder if there are any 
uh, general pieces of advice or just general observations he made that you could share with our listeners that you think might benefit anyone, but you know, it never occurred to you until you had someone watching from the outside uh, of your life, though the inside of your department, and kind of commenting on how you and, and your team conduct yourselves day by day? Well, there were several that stick out. Uh, one is um, alignment of values and uh, behavior. So it's uh, particular attention to the culture of your program. If you say the culture of your program is based on collegiality and cooperation, then you have to decide in leadership what you're willing to do if someone steps outside those guidelines. We actually had to let faculty go who consistently stayed out of guidelines of culture that we had agreed upon as a group. Um, Another instance is we always claimed to be a resident-centric program focused on resident training, uh, but we had you know, faculty designing the resident educational curriculum. Now the residents do it and we just facilitate it and it's much better. And then again, uh, making sure that what you want your program to produce, whether it's academics, superstars, collaborative surgeons, that you can see in your compensation plan how your compensation plan would drive that kind of behavior forward. Wow. Well, Dr. Van Lovren, this conversation has spanned from 14,000 feet to the floor of the middle fossa. Um, thank you so much for your time and your expertise, sharing the observations um, that you've learned in, in these variety of experiences that you've had in life. Um, as a native Floridian, I'll say that uh, growing up and when I started looking at medical schools, and uh, you know, looking at various departments around the state, um, I you know we all held USF in great esteem, great respect for the program and your faculty there. Um, so thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and giving us your time, sir. Thank you, Mike, for just a great opportunity. And may I say, I've always admired you know, the development of your career and what you're doing in Spine. So I appreciate this conversation.